podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It is the weekend coming up. We've got the Istanbul crew. Uh, they've contributed uh, and they're telling us their experiences of Istanbul in the game last night. Uh, that is to come. We've also got Amy Lawrence talking about um, Mesut Ozil and Saeed Kalashinac and what they've experienced recently and the knock-on effects of that and Rory Smith talking about nostalgia within football that is all to come also with those in the room I've got Jamie McKenna and Ian Ryan we're going to be talking about Liverpool's visit to Southampton but we will start with Liverpool against Chelsea and Jay say what you want so that lad can lift a trophy he's good at it ain't he I was should do it more shouldn't he yeah when he, when, he, when he picked it up I was thinking I should have a little dance here I should have a little dance it was only missing the fireworks really yeah, I think it was a bit of a damp squib. I think all the players were expecting something big. They like really got into it, and then Firmino was irritated. Yeah, for, Come on, for, she was fuming. No Come on, everyone's yeah. looking at this, going, "What kind of you know, what kind of two bit operation is this?" <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I think it, you know, it, it, I think you got the sense that from the players the way they came on celebrating at the end. But you know, Henderson was talking about the next game, but it's it's that mentality, isn't it? You're playing these games, you want to win, you want to you want to win every game. You, you, you know, if you're a professional, but if you're you know, you're Jordan Henderson, there's a trophy at the end of this. No matter what it's for, it is recognised by the club as, you know, I mean, it's, on it's on the it's on the it's on the, <clears throat> the wall at Melwood. You know, it sets a you know, it sets a mood in the club. We win these trophies, we we play against top teams and we win. And I think, you know, I, I get the frustration from people about, you know, the idea we're playing Saturday and not Sunday and it's a long way and the potential for, you know, a bit of a, a slip up at, at Southampton or, or tired players, but you know, I reckon if you said to lots of them players, do you fancy going to train at Melwood? Or do you fancy being a bit tired on Saturday and having a chance to win a trophy? I'd hope or I'd expect that they'd, they'd pick the trophy. The the idea that this is what we do, Ian, I felt during the game at no point, I thought that Chelsea had the better of the game, but I never thought they were going to win the match. And I, I, listen, we could have got beat on penalties, mm. but, but watching it, I didn't at any point, at any point, even at 1-0, <clears throat> even when Pulisic gets the goal disallowed to go 2-0. And at no point was there, was there even a part of me going... I th- I, while I don't think we play particularly well, I just never felt that deeply under threat. I, I just thought these lads will sort it out. And that was, a, it was really interesting because that's a journey you go on with the team. And I'm now sort of at that point where I was watching it going, these lads will sort this out. They're just going to sort this out. And they, 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 they managed to do that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I was a little bit more concerned. I think if the Pulisic one stands, and obviously it's clearly offside, but if that does go in and counts, I'd have been worried. I'd have panicked. And I thought, you know, we're not playing well. We're in a bit of a poor moment. You know, you can look at what we're doing with the ball and without the ball. And none of it was great, in fairness. You know, Chelsea were getting in loads down our right-hand side. And that's a bit of a theme because teams have to pick somewhere. You always say that, Neil. And obviously, the right-hand side is easier than going down our left with Robertson and Van Dijk. But they were getting in a lot. Uh, I think they're the best player on the pitch in Kante. Um can't say he's, a, he's an interesting footballer because he's not the most technically gifted of footballers, but his impact on a game is immense. And it's the amount of ground he covers where last night you see him at one point, he's just sweep up in front of his centre-halves. And then next minute, he's pressing our centre-halves. He's unreal in terms of his output. We obviously get better and Firmino changes an awful lot when he comes on. He comes on and he has a huge 20 minutes of football and we just look completely different. I reckon we should start all games pretending that it's half-time. Jürgen Klopp should sit there and go to them right 15 minutes out of half-time and just pretend it's the mm-hmm. second half every time they play football. Why is it? I think I think it's because they're brilliant at analysis and I think they're pulling loads of stuff on and tweaking things and sorting it out. That's what I think yeah, they're I, doing I think there, there's Jake. a thing. I, I think there's, there's a bit of this as well, don't forget, is the lads are still getting fit. They're still get, they're getting back into the rhythm of playing football. 
you know, and I think also we've got to remember that our our level of improvement isn't going to be as marked as someone like a Chelsea. So we've played Chelsea, we played City. You sign players; they're going to make a, a more, I think, more noticeable level of, improve, of improvement. Whereas if we'd have, you know, if you go back to Liverpool last year with all the players coming together, it just looks like we're on another level. We're sort of at the level we're at, but tweaking little bits and improving. And it's it's very much in the mind, like you say, it's it's understanding the game, it's managing games better now that we've been at that. You know, we know how to do this. And I'm with you with the game last night. I'm by and large watching this thinking, lads, you're playing football like a load of eleven year olds chasing the ball. But I'm still largely confident that you are the better team on the pitch. And then suddenly, by one change, Firmino, that it it all just shifts. You know, I'm thinking, nothing else has changed. He hasn't changed the three behind. You know, he hasn't changed the the defenders. And yet suddenly, Liverpool just look all over Chelsea, and Chelsea can't get out. And I think that's only three. It's only one man changed in that three, but it's just shifted everything. Mm. And I think it's just Liverpool sitting there going, well. This is how Chelsea have tried to get round us. We've now figured them out, and we're going to go back and do this to them. And I think that you know we've seen that against City particularly. And I think at that level, that's a, that's how games going to win. It's very now people talk about Klopp's football of being you know heavy metal and the attack and the players you know express themselves. I think some of this now is going to be a bit like what we've seen under Benitez, where he sits and looks at games and picks them apart and thinks right, this is how we're going to play football to beat this team because using our at that level, I don't need to ask you to do something out of the ordinary or get you to perform at, a diff- at, a, at an even higher level to be the best. I've just got to sort of counteract the opposition rather than ask you to do anything in particular. I think this is, I think that's what you get to see in that second half, but I think that you get to see it for f- the 15 minutes after half-time against Norwich. You get to see it second half in the Community Shield. I think he's he's got into, and I think you see it a lot last season, mm. there's, and there's, there's even just a little anecdotal stuff like the corner against Cardiff <clears throat> where Wijnaldum, supposedly the players, said, this is where we need to be. Like, everyone switched on to this idea of we're going to get to have a big chat about this and sort it out. And I think that the Firmino sub obviously helps in that, and it was very Roy of the Rovers. He basically comes on and saves the day, mm. Ian, through it all. But it's, I think that's what, you know, that for me, that's the big takeaway, is that if Liverpool are in the, if Liverpool are level coming into a half-time, I'm absolutely, I've got the utmost confidence Liverpool are going to find the way through with the opposition side and that's not been the case for years. I think that's totally fair. Uh, I take Jay's point you know, about starting games at half-time because there is a, a marked improvement, second 45. And I think some of it sometimes is just about you know letting the opposition blow themselves out a little bit. And I've said it on other shows, but you know Southampton last year is a prime case of that where they're all huff and puff. But Liverpool know that if they can weather the storm for 45, the chances are they're better players take control of the game second half. And that's what happens. And I think your point around players figuring things out, I think is really important. You know, we are a team of, of, of problem solvers, really. There's loads of lads there who you, you kind of back to solve their own problems. And the Cardiff one's really interesting because that's Jordan Henderson spotting something and going into the players at half time and saying to the management team, there's an opportunity here. It's him as an individual spotting something and and that's actually a theme of Henderson's career. Even back to his Sunderland days when the likes of Bruce was managing him, he was always a player who, even as a youngster, would spot things, certainly from a set-piece perspective, and tell the management, actually, there's an opportunity for us here if we work it this way. So we've got really intelligent footballers and and obviously a, a really intelligent management team as well, but there's no doubt, you know, Liverpool are picking and choosing their moments when to, to be good. You know, there's times where they've just got to sit in and weather the storm a little bit. And you, maybe you've got a little bit of that because it is early in the season. There's a bit of rustiness. But we've got 
really good footballers and good options from the bench to allow us to take control of games in the second half. The fear, Ian, is watching us get turned around. And I've not seen us, I think we've been turned around a lot. We were turned around a hell of a lot by Norwich before you even look at the Chelsea game. You know, there's, there's players passing into areas that they shouldn't really be getting through. And I think we are, we're watching our line be targeted here. And I think mm. we're simultaneously watching us take a few more gambles with it as well. I think there's there's almost a massive risk-reward thing going on every single game at the minute. Not from us, from the opposition. Everybody's giving it a good going over our line. Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, you do see you do see some teams look to to capitalise on the high line. I mean, West Ham do it, actually, uh, from a free kick um, and a couple of other occasions as well. So we are walking a bit of a tightrope, I think. Obviously, with the changes in technology, if you're, if you're playing it to perfection and you are you are going to get away with it every single time because VAR's in place now. And I know there was a bit of an issue last night with the penalty, but offsides are offsides. Uh, it's black and white. But yeah, it is a little bit of a worry, Neil. I mean, the worry was... And it got glossed over a little bit because everyone was just made up that we, we kind of won 4-1 first game of the season. But Norwich did get in all too easy. Uh, and you do see it last night. Um, I mean, Chelsea have got have got good players, as have City, you have to say that. And Chelsea's demise was never going to be quite as severe as people were making out after the Man United game. They were missing players in that game. They brought a lot of experience back in last night. Suddenly they've got Pulisic in there as well as obviously a new player. Um, so, yeah, that is, that is the worry. And they're going to have to get better at it pretty quickly. Um, because you can get bet your bottom dollar, Southampton will be at the races on, on Saturday. So if there is a worry for the manager, it's probably, yeah, teams getting in a little bit too easy. But actually as well, I mean, I think the other thing was, that I touched on it before, the midfield looks a little bit all over the show at the minute. It's very functional. Um, but when you're relying on, when you haven't got your full-backs, uh, or when you haven't got both of them, so obviously Trent's missing last night, then you do need your midfield to be a little bit more creative because normally, yeah, if it's functional, you've got your fullbacks offering the the threat and the creativity. But if you haven't got two of them, then there's a bit more emphasis on the midfield to be able to do a little bit of that. And that was that wasn't very forthcoming last night. We were very very blunt in terms of feeding those those front three. And then the other thing to say was obviously Chamberlain starts within that front three surprised me a little bit. Um, you've seen him do it right hand side pre season, but he's one of those lads because he's a midfielder. His natural instinct is to tuck back in. But obviously last night he was a he was a passenger really, and I felt a little bit sorry for him. Um, he gets the hook at half time, but you think, you no, know, there's a lad who suddenly does look like he's a he's a, a fair bit away from maybe making an impact on the first eleven. Uh, on on the high line stuff, I, there was a few times when we you know the lines when put uh, the lines uh, put a flag up, and I'm I'm looking at that thinking, I, I quite applaud them for being brave. We can, it's easy to get nervous, but I quite applaud them for saying, you know what, we're going to just keep doing this because we, we know we can do it. And you see, I think for their goal, Van Dijk looks right. He looks for the flag and it doesn't come. I think Liverpool are, you know, just, are, are just a bit all over the place. And it, it struck me, and I think the same in Norwich, is, is we just look sloppy. And I, and I think Klopp's trying to figure out whether it's just players just aren't on it. And I know we made changes last night, I suspect, to save legs, but I think a bit of that was also probably to see if if there's a formation or a, or a setup of, you know what what the makeup of the back four or the three in midfield should look like, just to see if it gives us a bit of stability and rigid, rigidity. 
just while we get ourselves bedded into this season, because I, I was just looking at last night, there were just passes that you were just thinking, Liverpool don't make that pass. I take your point about being risky, but I just think there were times where you think they just don't even make that pass into the middle of the park. I was about to say, they were usually playing the middle. Yeah, the middle. The number yeah. of times they passed into the middle to no one yeah. was, 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 was bizarre. And yeah. Kante is cutting that out, and he was very aware of it, but I'm thinking lots of times you've seen Liverpool try and turn, turn the midfield around and get it into the three and sort of then press up the pitch, but that didn't happen. But, you know, I think also been annoyed. even a bit last night the players were almost just they were playing within themselves they were doing just enough Klopp will have said to them don't go and kill yourselves you know you've got a game on Saturday it's also hot it's very hot yeah, but, conditions and, and, I, and I think there's a thing even even against City I thought this even when we were better Liverpool were playing in the sense of and, and again against Norwich Liverpool were playing almost as in like we've just got to keep turning this screw slowly whereas I think some people maybe seeing us go for and up against Norwich and think we could press them here and then like absolutely annihilate them. But instead, Liverpool were just like, no, we've done enough now. We're just going to like play at this level and chances will come. And, you know, admittedly against, you know, if you, th- if you look at all of the games, Liverpool could have won all three games so far, City, Norwich and Chelsea at a canter with it, for it not being for a couple of really good goalkeeping saves, particularly against Norwich and against Chelsea. You'd you have to say as well, we probably should have had a penalty first yeah. half. Well, I mean, and they shouldn't. And they shouldn't have had a penalty. I mean, that, that the pen that that we don't get. I mean, at, at first kind of watch, I suppose, I didn't think it was a pen, but when you see it back, I mean, it's an absolute stone wall. If, if you're using... Based on the rules. Yeah, based, yeah. On, the, based on the new rules. And you, and you see it in, certainly in Europe last year on a couple of occasions, um, games at PSG, games at, at Wembley City v, v Spurs, it was an absolute stone wall. And the game could then have been, have been different and maybe Liverpool kind of run away with it a little bit. You know, Chelsea start thinking about what happened to them on Sunday against United. That starts to play a little bit of a part in their thinking. And we end up winning 2 or 3 nil. But that doesn't go for us. And obviously we go, we go a goal behind. But as I say, the reaction after half-time was really good. Uh, there is, you mentioned what, what's really good. The other thing to take from it is the keeper, Ian, is maybe a little bit rash uh, for the one that ends up being the penalty. It's one where if there wasn't VAR, I'd be saying you don't give the referee a decision to make there. Yeah. You don't give the referee like a decision to make there. I know I know, he says that, but I've been saying it longer. Um, <laughs> you don't give the referee a decision. I mean, maybe I haven't. He's older than me. Maybe he's been saying it since he was six. Um, I've been very boring with it since I was about Ooh. 11. Um, no, Gary Neville's not older than you. Of course, Gary Neville's older than me. I'm not feeling like I'm going to be put on the spot about old Neil. No, I want to think Gary Neville. Hang on, let's I think, he's th- I think he's about 39 or 40. Gary Neville's 37, 38, I reckon. I think he's 39 or 40. Gary Neville's 44. Oh, dear. Is God. he, yeah? yeah. That's 44. the thing of being a millionaire. You're probably younger. 44? Than... I feel so old. I didn't know he was as old as that. Yeah, well, I can't believe this is I thought, he, I thought he was a similar age to Carragher, but obviously he's not. How old do we think Neil is? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm now like panicking, thinking I'm going to close it. <laughs> You've been a nightmare, AJ. I've had a, I've had a bad day in work, and this is about to get all that worse. I, can't, I um, honestly can't believe McKenna's gone down this route. <laughs> I don't know why I brought it up, but Car- uh, sorry, moving on. We'll uh, this out. Carragher's 41. I thought he was similar age to Carragher. Carragher's 41. I'm three years younger than Carragher. Shut up. It's fuck off, Jay. <laughs> You're dead, mature, you're, dead, you're dead mature, Neil. This is taking a twist, aren't it? This part. Yeah. I'm just trying to talk about the goal. <laughs> and I've ended up all the way over How about Adrian? <laughs> He's, he, he finds himself in a position where I think what, what I liked about him is he was eager to be take charge on front foot. And even with the penalty, even the penalty he gives away, it's, it's because of an eagerness to command that part of his box. And I think that... If you're going to come in and be Liverpool goalkeeper, I think you've got to come in and set an agenda. And I think he's done that with his performance last night. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see 
obviously he's been working with the team for for about a couple of weeks now. So you know when he comes on against Norwich, he does okay, but maybe there's a little bit of nervousness in terms of commanding his box and coming off his line. You don't see that at all last night. I thought he was great. He makes some really really crucial saves. I I wouldn't be harsh on him on the penalty. I think you know he he pulls out basically, uh, and if the technology does what it's supposed to do, or the people who are viewing the technology do what they should do, then, you know, that doesn't get given. I thought the referee, actually, I thought she had a really, really good game. Uh, I thought the She must have felt like she was under massive pressure. Yeah, and I think, you know, f- from where she's on the where she is on the pitch, oh, most referees totally see probably, she's given that, yeah. they probably give it because it looks like there's been a collision. And even when I first see it in the pub, I think, yeah, he's probably clipped in there. But when you see the other angle... He's absolutely pulled away, and as I say, you know, Sammy Abrams, you know, taking one there, and he's dived, and there's a load, there's a load of karma, isn't it? Because he's the lad who misses the penalty. Just the on end. the officiating, on the the, the 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 discussion, the punditry around the the officiating last night was absolutely astonishing. Um, absolutely, it's genuinely not. I they, couldn't they, really hear it. They, the were, they, they were openly at one point suggesting that they didn't want to overrule that decision um, because of the high-profile nature of the game and it being the first time a woman's refereed a man's yeah. game, which I found astonishing. There was a lot of that chat on Twitter there was, as well. Glenn Hoddle was talking about the idea that it was amazing she'd kept up. It's like, mate, she'd beat you in a race, even in your fittest days, and yet you're still you're talking about the idea is if you know, a woman, woman goes to gym, woman, fit. Woman, woman can run around football yeah. pitch. Well, yeah, is, is, an elite, is almost an elite-level athlete. It's just, it's just astonishing. And and I think there's a thing that... and that, It's not like Glenn Hoddle's a controversial opinion, though, no, is it? It's just, it's just, it was just nuts, but... I think that's almost overshadowed that decision around Varn. What the problem of, of something like that is it, it you know, officiating becomes the thing still VAR hasn't removed the controversy, you know, which is not a bad thing because people are saying, you know, that they don't want to lose that, so it almost nullifies that argument. It's more the sense of what is this for? And you feel like last night on this, officials are gonna be hamstrung by the technology or by whether the camera angles are available in all stadiums and that you know the the imp- one of the issues with VAR previously was about whether it would be used in all games in the FA Cup because some grounds didn't yeah. have it. It's like, well, if not all grounds can be of the same standard, you can't have it to to make some decisions in Europe and not others. And also, you can't have it. You know, the the angles, the angles thing was absolutely crackers. Um, before just to sort of close it off, it's a little like the end of last season, uh, Ian. In that Liverpool's front three show how priceless they are. Um, Firmino in absentia last season uh, does that. Liverpool don't attack as well when he doesn't play towards the end of the season. Salah uh, was looked unbelievably sharp, unbelievably fit. But Sadio Mane uh, with that brace was absolutely different class. Yeah, it's it's always interesting, isn't it? When you talk about the front three and people will often have conversations about which one's more important. It, it, it's just really hard to separate them because one minute you're choosing Mane and then Firmino comes on, changes the game and it, and it's him. You know, everyone says he's the system. You know, Salah's fitness levels are just ridiculous. He's doing stuff at the end of the game. He's got no right to be doing, quite honestly. So, I mean, you know... Honestly, you know, if you were a Chelsea centre-half there, you'd have said, come on, let's just wind that in. You know, you'd, 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 you kind of feel like you'd, you know, you'd play Salampton kind of, you know, today... He could. <laughs> you'd, you'd have had no issue with going. Gone the gun, gone straight to ground. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, all all three at times. I mean, obviously, Firmino gets the headlines. Even though Mane gets the brace because Firmino comes on and changes the game. I actually think Chelsea solved the Firmino problem after about twenty minutes into the second half. They become much better. Don't get me wrong. He comes alive again because he sets the second one up. But they do figure out a way of stopping him. Um, but Sadio Mane, I mean. It, He's long been my favourite, I have to say, in terms of the front three. I thought he was great last year. Um, he can do a little bit of everything. 
um, Sadio Mane. You know, it's not just the fact that he can go uh, and score two goals. It's what he offers you defensively as well. And that's why it's so hard for Liverpool to not play Sadio Mane in any game because of what he gives you on and, on and off the ball. So, yeah, really, really good performance from all three last night. So, yeah, superb. Uh, it is about all three, isn't it, Jay? And I think that this is... This is maybe one of the reasons why Liverpool found it a little bit difficult to make a decision about dipping into the markets, but it is all three, and it's it's the extent to which they're all brilliant players, and then they're better than the sum of the parts, and I, that's a bit mad. Yeah, it it is, and I think if you watch, and it's a, it's that thing about when he comes on, suddenly one player's changed, and Chelsea just look like a like like they haven't got a clue how to defend against Liverpool. Everybody's involved then because Firmino's come on and brought them all into the game. I think if you if you look at that last night, it, it should underline to anyone how difficult it is for Liverpool to sign a forward player that either complements them when they're not all playing together or the idea that they can be a bit part player. I think we, he can do that because he's a very different kind of player and he knows his level and we all almost accept his level. But if Liverpool go out, go out and sign a forward now for whatever sum of money, you know, and Regan, the current market would be worth 40, 50 million. So, if, but if Liverpool, I think, went out and bought a player that I've never played, we'd never really seen play before for 40, 50 million, we'd be expecting the next Sadio Mane or Mo Salah. And I just think it's very hard for them to do that because they just won't play enough football. Whereas them lads just have that thing, you know, that Liverpool lad with that three under Rodgers and Liverpool have had when they've had, you know, good duos up front. They just know where someone's going to be. Firmino, Salah is making that run last, for Mane's second goal, Salah is making the run towards the penalty spot. Mane's dropped back because Firmino's gone wide. Now, if anyone asked for positions where they think a player would be at that moment, they would be betting that Mane's wide. Yep. Salah's probably on the edge of the box and Firmino's maybe around the penalty spot. And it's just not... It, 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 they just all can do each other's job in a way as well, which is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, great stuff from Jay and Ian. But back talking about Southampton with them shortly. We've also got coming up uh, we've got the Istanbul crew. Uh, we have um, Rory Smith and there's Amy Lawrence as well. Fantastic stuff on the weekend. Don't go anywhere. All right, the weekender. We're in Istanbul Airport. I'm Josh Sexton. I'm joined by Fuad Hassan and Mo Stewart after the Reds have won the European Super Cup. It's the day after the night before, Mo. How are you feeling about last night? Um, I've not had a chance to watch a lot of it back apart from like little snippet videos that people have put up on Twitter and stuff like that. But I still maintain the fact that that game was nuts. Like... Aside from the five minutes after both of our goals in the in the 120, we didn't look like winning that game at all. And Chelsea did. Chelsea were obviously a lot sharper to the ball than us. They had obviously felt a little bit of a sting, a little bit of their pride was hurt after what happened to them against United. So they were coming here, hoping that we'd underestimated them. But I think maybe that happened in the stands. I don't think it happened on the pitch. I think that Liverpool generally would looked a little leggy. They were a little bit sloppy. And yet... Here we are, super champions. So, you know, Chelsea, there's at the start of their um, story as a particular team under the Frank Lampard era, whereas you saw the benefit of a squad who trust each other, trust the manager, and have been through it with each other again and again, and now know how to get it done. It's been interesting for looking sort of back through the, the coverage of, of last night this morning because there seemed to be a lot of, you know, sort of talk that Liverpool never looked like they lose that game. Liverpool are really good at managing games and, you know, we don't lose them kind of games anymore. But in the ground, it, it, it honestly felt like it was on a knife edge, didn't it? You know, you can talk about the chances that, that fell to Tammy Abraham. I think there was, there was a few others as well. Maybe Pedro had one. And there was a couple of times where Chelsea looked like they were really putting the squeeze on Liverpool. It definitely felt in the ground like Liverpool could have lost that game, didn't it? Definitely. I think, I think Chelsea probably looking back at it and thinking they had the chances as well. There's, there's no reason for them not to think that. And I think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the coverage, as you're saying, we looked over, there's been 
talk about it being, you know, in the balance for the whole game virtually. And it certainly didn't feel like that in the stadium. It really felt like that second half, uh, like Mo was saying, the five minutes after we score was probably the only best period we had. And, and then after that, it was very much Chelsea again. And, and I think the, in the ground, you could feel the atmosphere dying. It, it was a bit flat for a bit just because of the nerves and, and wanting to get the job done. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when you're there, I think I turned around and said to one of you that I felt like I was at a big European final as soon as I got into that ground. It felt like, you know, everyone was there, the buzz was there and everything. So, you know, you expect that in these sort of games because the weather was, was tough in terms of playing conditions. You, you looked at the, some of the players after a few minutes, uh, after a few minutes into the second half and you could see, you know, people were tiring, people going down and cramping in extra time. And it's something you don't really plan for this early on in the season is it playing games like that. And and at the end of the day, winning winning the trophies, all what it's all about, you know, how you do it doesn't really matter. I think there are some questions there for the manager. I think probably some of them have been answered in terms of experimenting with, with different players in different p positions. And I thought, you know, down down the flanks, we, we didn't look great in terms of the fullbacks and thought when we any of our play down the middle was <laughs> was really kind of lacking in intensity. And I think that's just because Kante was unreal and, and because Chelsea did play well for most of that game. Pulisic looked really, really good for, for someone who's just really come in and, and I think that for them there's a lot of encouraging signs because I think they could be an exciting team this season to, to watch and hopefully hopefully that doesn't mean anything in terms of where they go but for from our point of view I think it was a wake-up call I think that, that that's what it was and playing such a big game this early on will kind of set the tone now for what what this team is going to be expected to do what the manager expects them to do and they've got a big game now on Saturday to look forward to. Mo, Phil, I sort of touched on it there. The atmosphere was was different, wasn't it? I think you know we've mentioned it on on our final tour diary we just recorded there. It's it was it was more of a diverse crowd. It wasn't you know it wasn't what you're going to get in an away game. It won't be with the same end as you see at Southampton away on Saturday. It won't be the same crowd that you get at Anfield. But it was a crowd that were that were really happy to be there, really happy to be there celebrating the European champions. And then obviously after the uh, after the sort of rigmarole of, that was the game, the, uh, the the super champions of Europe. Yeah, um, one of the funny things I always forget whenever I haven't been to the grounds in a while is that you are at the whim of people with ridiculously bad takes from the stands behind you. And some, there were a couple of times I had to turn around and give someone a look as if to say, what are you on about? But, I mean, that happens again when the players aren't really playing up to what we want. But uh, Dave Lynch said something really um intelligent on Twitter that I hadn't thought of is the idea that now we are European champions we are going to be judged by that higher standard in every single game and whereas last season if you remember the, the results were coming in early on but the performances were still a little bit ropey and we put that down to how intense our pre-season always is how intense Klopp likes to work them during that pre-season he's probably had to tailor that because of the bigger games happening earlier and just the more games so whether or not he was expecting that more than we were I don't know but it'll be interesting to see the team for Southampton and whether that reflects the fact that there were players who weren't playing as much who are going to get a bigger role and well I mean the one for me really is whether we see Gomez again at right back because I think that's probably the biggest talking point in terms of the actual players on the pitch uh, it's something that a lot of people have said for a while that he's he's still a centre-back playing a full-back and I don't know, I just, I look at him in the, on the pitch and I really feel like he's doing it because he's been told to do it, but he really wants to be in the middle. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you, I think you mentioned on the on the tour diary before, Field, about how UEFA are trying to make this 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 sort of game in, into a big showcase. And it certainly felt that way, you know, by by proxy of the way the crowd were up for it. But also, you know, from from a Liverpool perspective, obviously we were stood behind the goal, which which sort of you expected would be the home end. But then you get into the ground and you realise that actually near enough the whole ground's a home end. And Chelsea have just got a little sort of away section in the corner. And you know, you didn't really hear a peep out of them all night, except for except for maybe their goals. But it did truly feel like a, a a Liverpoolian occasion, didn't it? it? Yeah, completely. And I think it, it felt like one of those where, you know, it, it was meant for Liverpool to win, if you know what I mean, because people, you know, you could see people travel from all over the world for this. Being, being, you know, right on the on the on the crossroads of Asia and Europe, it, it's accessible for lots of people who probably, you know, maybe not be able to get down to Anfield or, or anywhere else. So, yeah, you really had a, a like an international celebration, I guess, of the Reds, and and it, it was great to see because there's that mix, you know, the mix of the the, the guys who go week in week out and 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 people who don't get that chance. So it was, it was really good to see, and I thought in the ground as well, you know, the, the atmosphere. For, for for the first 20 minutes half an hour was really good and you know it was, it was really bouncing and I thought you know yeah like you're saying the Chelsea fans really didn't travel well and, and and I guess it just shows again how big this team is how big this club is because you know Chelsea's Chelsea's a team that, that have had recent European success and have have won trophies fairly regularly for the last few years and, and a lot more than us certainly and, and still that reach isn't quite there is it? it's it's not the same level and and you know the fact that that we can bring this many just goes to show that this club is is probably the biggest in the world. Mo, just quickly on, on on the sort of trip as a whole, you think back to 2005 and and the way maybe people from Istanbul look look at Liverpool fans and look at the romanticism of, of Liverpool as a football club, and you really sort of got that feeling from from the moment you almost stepped off the plane in Istanbul, didn't you? It's it's, it's a city which is still so sort of taken by Liverpool. Liverpool is still so sort of so so held so highly in the hearts of the Istanbul people. One of the first adverts in this um, airport that we came in, I saw, was um, Turkish Airlines since 2005 and had a Liverpool flag in it. So they're very aware. And I think that's their biggest entry into European football folklore. I mean, obviously, there's talk of the 90s, of the Galatasaray teams and the Welcome to Hell stuff. And I was thinking about that a lot on this trip, the idea of how that intimidation factor that they used in those era, at that time uh, to their advantage. Well, obviously, we weren't playing against the Turkish team, so we didn't really see it. So we just got to see the fun side, the exuberance of it. And in the stadium in particular, it really kind of struck me because... Like we were saying, there was times when we were, as Liverpool fans, a bit flat. And then the Turkish guys started singing their own songs. And they were just so happy to be there. And it kind of gave us all a lift. We were just like, oh, well, they're enjoying themselves. So we should remember to enjoy ourselves as well. And that's something I've taken away from Turkey in general, is that everyone here is more than happy to accept us into their city and to help us enjoy ourselves and to do what we do as best as we can. Yeah, absolutely. Turkey really took the Reds into our hearts. The Reds painted Turkey red once again. Istanbul is red once again. And Liverpool are the super champions of Europe. John, what's your position on free beer? I'm for it, but also sceptical. Like I've been uh, taken in in the past by those uh, free beer tomorrow signs in pubs they hilariously put up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when it's you all... go back tomorrow and it's still there and you're like, ah. Yeah, and it's all no, ironic. Now I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah but this, yeah, is, this, yeah. Is, this, is, this is actual uh, actual free beer. It's uh, Beer 52, our friends at Beer 52. And if you want to just get stuck in, by the way, and fast forward the next four minutes, it's beer52.com forward slash rap. Uh, <laughs> if you've heard enough. If you've heard enough, <laughs> we've sold you. <laughs> um, it's just 4 95 for the postage. Um, 
And if you sign up within the next two weeks, you get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers uh, from Beer 52. We've got them all out. I'm going to open mine. Uh, okay. I'm going to literally, one of the, I can't believe, you know, people often say, oh, you know, you must have the best job in the world. And sometimes I'm a bit like, well, you don't know a lot of what goes on behind the scenes. But right now it is, we're recording this on Tuesday. It's 20 past 12 and I'm doing this, <laughs> which does feel like I'm taking a liberty. What have you got? Hmm. I've got Freedom of Movement, uh, Black Lager, in, in collaboration with Boundary. It's a cooperative brewery in Belfast. And the concept behind it is a positive celebration uh, that protects the basic rights of individuals to travel. Uh, it's called Freedom of Movement, and it's the product of Freedom of Movement between Sligo Island and Belfast in Northern Ireland. You can see what, the, what they're going at here. Yeah, it is um, basically Beer 52. It's always themed what they what they send uh, each month. So they do kind of different countries sometimes, or they do like UK ones and stuff like that. Uh, they've done, I think, Korean ones we had, we had sometimes, uh, Norwegian, California. That was a good month. Uh, but this theme this month I wish is... they could all be California beers. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, this theme is Citizens of Everywhere. Um, so Citizens of Everywhere. So it seems to be uh, Beer 52 nailing their um, nailing their colours to the to the uh, Remain mast, uh, which 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 is fine. Do you know what I mean? Um, they've got one can called Spread of Democracy, which seems optimistic <laughs> to me. Um, but yeah, United. I mean, we- maybe the beer's gonna do it. <laughs> United we can, uh, which is by More Beer Company, which is good. I like the look of it. Good to United we stand spreading out even more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, Vienna looks great, doesn't it? Oh, is a lovely looking can. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very eye catching indeed, and yeah, plenty more as well. Paradise as well. There we are. Oh, that's the Blackberry uh, Milkshake IPA. We've had that before. We have had that before. It's good. It's a lot better than you think it's going to be. <laughs> I don't know, you know that can sound like it's 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 honestly really really nice. It terrified the life out of me. Uh, first first and foremost, I mean, all this buys into the fact that Beer Fifty Two do look for beers from all over the place. They want you to find new, interesting, and different things to drink. Uh, that's what they're about really it very much is it's all small batch breweries uh and i think that that's really interesting i think it's sort of direction that people are going in more and more uh as someone who you know does like to try different things john it's it's nice and i always like it when you turn up into the art i mean i, I was very eager i was very much let's go and do this now when you just walked in with a box <laughs> it feels as though i've got a, i've got a set agenda there yeah it's, it is a, it is a nice fit yeah they didn't have to do you know pick us kind of you know out of out of, out of a hat but it, it was interesting to go to america wasn't it because they've had a craft beer boom I would, Absolutely. I would say, um, yeah. I remember the first time, sort of going over to America with me, with my dad and 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 you know him, sort of to moan about the options. And now you go over, there's there's, there's absolutely tons, absolutely tons. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting, kind of seeing how that has developed over there when we were there in the summer. But obviously here as well, and and Beer Fifty Two are trying to kind of help you out with that. So if you if you're interested in craft beers but don't know where to start, they sent you something new every month. And um, yeah, it's a total of ten beers this month, which is good. But you can. You can get stuck in, but also obviously cancel every at any time. It is uh, a subscription service, so if you if you decide after after you one month of free beers, then it, then it's not for you moving forward, and that's completely fine. It'll only cost you the four pound ninety five posting packaging. But if you decide to stay with them, and I know a lot of you have because we promoted Beer Fifty Two before, I know you, a lot of you do enjoy kind of what they send every month. Then then yeah, they'll be happy to keep you and, and keep sending you the beers, keep sending you the these little snacks. This month is a curry flavored roasted chickpeas. I think I might have to bow out at that for at, at, at this point. And then you've got your ferment magazine, uh, which is always a cracking read. I actually like ferment magazine. I've yeah. been, you've, you've, I think you've walked in on me in the studio and idly thumbing it, <laughs> uh, and working right the way through. Listen, the purpose of all of this uh, is obviously these beer fifty two do want to uh, want to. Uh, 
sort of promote podcasts and work with them. Um, but they are trying to be about something. And also the other thing I will point out as well is that this is not a gendered thing any way, shape or form. Everyone can drink the beer and can enjoy it. And that's what we're all about is people enjoying themselves. So if you fancy the beer 52, you know where it is. Uh, it is beer 52. It's five to the numbers, uh, five to the numbers uh, dot com forward slash rap. Feel free to get stuck in and enjoy. Joined by Amy Lawrence to discuss her piece in The Athletic about, well, starting off to discuss Mrs. Ursel and uh, Sead Kalasnich, uh, but taking in wider conversations around players' security and feelings of safety uh, in the world. And it's it's something, Amy, which you you frame through uh, Ozil in, in two or three different ways, his, his heritage, his, his feelings in Germany, his hometown, and now what is his adopted hometown of, of London. And I think the first thing that sort of grabbed me on this was, you know, we... we we, we, we at times think of our footballers as rootless, but actually they're as eager as any normal human to find a way to put roots down. And they're as dismayed as other humans would be when they feel as though that is threatened in, in a number of different ways. I think that's a, a, a really uh, sensitive way of looking at things. And I, I, it's so interesting when we're within the confines of the 90 minutes of a football match, particularly if we have some partisan feelings for one team or another and you're watching and you're emotional um we all make occasionally incredibly harsh judgments about <laughs> fellow humans uh, let's be honest here because in that context it all feels like fair game and we put all our own hopes and dreams and emotions and anger and frustrations onto how we feel about how that person is trying to play sport and what that means is, especially in this modern social media age as well, is that we've come quite far away from uh, the game as was for sort of a previous generation where players weren't too distant from the rest of us, if you like. Um, you know, and, and, and although players have always had stick from crowds and things, I think now we don't really see them as humans in the same way that we see each other. Although I think we're living in an era where people don't look very kindly towards one another too often anyway. But you're right. There is this, you know, the footballer's bubble, I suppose. I think in, in England really began around the time of the great rebirth of or change in the English game with post-Italia 90, post-Gazza's Tears, post-Fever Pitch, post-Sky Sports and the Premier League coming into being and and, and internationalisation of the game and globalisation and players coming from everywhere, managers coming from everywhere, and this kind of big melting pot we have today that's super famous and everybody all over the world loves it. Before that, you know, footballers could live relatively normal lives. And this bubble has it became erected out of a sort of necessity just because it would be kind of mental to try and go about your normal day going to the pub going to a restaurant going to shops having a walk in the park taking your kids out whatever without a million people wanting something from you whether it's a selfie whether it's shouting at you whether it's a pat on the back whether it's an autograph just or whether it's just staring yeah (laughs) i mean it's it's quite you know they're very shut off nowadays in a way by necessity and trying to see if there's a chance to have a normal life within that. I mean, someone like, obviously, Robertson strikes everybody by example of, of, of being fantastically, you know, somehow in this super famous world, or even Trent Alexander-Arnold because of his special case with his roots and so on, 
I don't know how they manage. I'd love to know you could tell me more um, <laughs> about how they manage up in, up in Liverpool. Um, but I definitely feel, certainly, even in a city like London, it was always such a brilliant escape. You know, why did Klinsman come here in the first place? Because he could drive his beat around and nobody cared who he was. Yeah. Uh, why? Did, you know, Dennis Bergkamp, who hated it when people put him on, uh, you know, he just wanted, he was a really shy guy who didn't really want to interact too much with people he didn't know. Had a pretty normal life, you know, and he could go out for a meal with his family and and largely be left alone, even if people stared a bit. Um, but obviously things have changed because now footballers, unfortunately, apart from just the difficulties living a normal life, are targets. Um, it's not a new thing, uh, it, it, but it's, it's a real thing. So... Um, well, it's a little bit like what, what, what I think, not least, what doesn't help here. And while whilst there was aspects of the video which 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 were you know, which went everywhere where you could see how the footballers you know, responded to the thing that happened to them in the first place. But the thing is, it's just sort of it's easy for us to watch the video and then get on with our lives. What I think your piece is putting over is it's almost like a bit of a hammer blow. It shatters the the the, the, the reality for everyone around them. And now Arsenal, as a football club, as an institution, as a as an employer, are left in the position of trying to. Of trying to help these two, I'll say as as you know, it should always be said, relatively young men through mm. what is a what is a really strange heightened situation, which which takes all of this into another level, and it really does sort of when you stop to think about it, which is what your piece sort of makes you do as the reader, you you, you can see how this is an absolute hammer blow to these to these two lives. I agree. I think it's highly highly disturbing to think about that because you know the, terrible things happen to people. Um, and you know how people cope with uh, with trauma is something that unfortunately lots of individuals who are not well known have to have to deal with. Most people go through life and at some point or another have some trauma to deal with or another, whether it's you know a, a, an illness of a family member, whether it's a, a burglary, whether it's a you know a, a close scare or being run over or. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen to people in everyday life. Trying to understand how you process the the the, the stresses that that are part of recovering from trauma, psychological trauma, which everybody has if they're unfortunate enough to have a a, a really frightening event. But the, 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 for Mesut Ozil and Sarah Kalashnikov or other people in that kind of walk of life where these things happen to, I mean, you think of Monica Seles, for example, when. She was yep. playing tennis, and somebody she came on the on the court with a knife. I mean, what? <laughs> you know, and 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 obviously, not only her career but her whole life was was thrown into a chaos that took years to try and recover from. And whether she, you know, there's ever a total recovery for something like that is highly debatable. And they're so in the public eye and where they are, but their whole frame of reference for how you live your life is is obliterated. And plus you have the added thing that it's not just you you're worried about, you're worried about your family. So they both recently got married. They've got um, youngish women who are living in expensive houses that thanks to uh, certain media organisations have been plastered all over the internet for anybody to to figure out where they live. And they've got an away game or a European tie. And how do you feel about living, leaving your your young wife or your and your pets, for example, sort of home alone? Well, you might want to be there for... 48 hours or something it's very very difficult to 
rebuild. And plus, their situation is, seems to be extra complex because normally you might have an isolated incident, but yeah. this seems to have uh, really concerning sort of longer term issues where I'm not, I'm not sure anybody has really understood exactly the realities of, you know, gangs that are having a, a longer term threat than the one incident where well, that, yeah, that's, uh, they that's... were attacked and, and, and then it's over and you try and rebuild. I think that's the thing that's, that, again, which because the, the video sort of grabbed everyone's attention and you move from there, the thing that sort of surprised me in reading the piece was was this idea that I know this is actually ongoing now. And that's something which, you know, if you, if you are... It feels these... very unresolvable. Yeah. You know, you speak to a psychologist who tells you about the, you know, having a traumatic episode and how, you know, how your brain and your body deal with the, you know, uh, with reminders and, and flash, flashes of backs and, and fear and all those kind of things. But that can't really... They can't start to move on from those things. So from this so, point, for, for Arsenal now, sort of, and in terms of those sorts of roots and all of that sort of that that, that aspect of this, it, the difficulty for the club, isn't it, is is trying to get them back into some sort of form of a routine. You would think the best thing that they can do is actually play some football and feel and get a sense of normality. But that is that's the that's easy for me to say. That's the challenge that's in front of the football mm-hmm. club, really, and and it's one mm-hmm. which you know, again, p- people at football clubs are really trained to deal with this and this is a sudden reality that Arsenal have to have to, have to plunge themselves into. True. Look, they ha- they'll be taking all sorts of advice and uh, all, as many precautions as, as they can uh, uh, as as per experts in, in security and so on and so forth. The bigger, but that's only part of the picture. That's, that's one side of the story, but the real bit is what's going on inside the heads of Mesut Ozil and Serge Kalasnach yeah. and how sustainable is it to have 24-hour security? I mean, if you're used to living in a, you know, and, and this is one of the things that I thought was fascinating, really, but, you know, I've heard people saying, well, why didn't they have all this mega security already? And surely, I think it's naive that they weren't already protected. What are you doing? Going, buying an expensive watch in a flash car if you haven't got protection and this, that and the other. But hang on, <laughs> you know, they're trying to live, in, well, you know, as normal a life as they can. And I, I admired that, you know, yep. Mesut Ozil is not um, a, a relatively unknown human being. He's got nearly 25 million Twitter followers. And uh, yeah, y- you know, if you live nearby, I'm not exaggerating that much to say, you could see him p- putting out his his own rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he wasn't that uh, that up his own whatever to to not try and do relatively normal things. He, he wanted to just be able to go out and go, been go on the to tube, cafe. He's been and, seen on the tube. Well, uh, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, if he has, I mean, he'd be wasting his journey on a fantastic car collection. But <laughs> but it's more more just generally speaking that he, he didn't hide himself away behind, you know, big gates with scary-looking people and, and Alsatians outside. Uh, he didn't want to live in a gated community. He didn't want to, you know, feel that he could never open his front door. I, I don't think it really occurred to him in a way, which is sad because you think that's what somebody's having to deal with in their heads, thinking, well, maybe the life I thought was normal it can't really happen anymore. So there's a lot that they've got to think about in terms of how they want to carry on. And I, don't, I think... It's quite plausible to imagine that actually leaving is is a yeah. possibility because once you feel um, 
totally violated in your own home or your lifestyle is totally viola- violated, it's it's reasonable to think, okay, maybe maybe I'll just clear off and be a million miles away from all of this. Um, but only time will tell in terms of how well the players and the club are able to cope with this situation and if somehow they get information to this sort of the level of ongoing threat is is eased somehow um but i mean i don't know can anybody really promise them that when you're dealing with criminal gangs i don't know Uh, that's probably quite a difficult thing to to get certainty over it's going to be remarkably difficult. Thanks so much to Amy for this and for also writing the piece. You can read it on The Athletic. Uh, let's move ourselves along here. Joined by Rory Smith of The New York Times to have a chat about the piece he wrote this week around football's sudden. Is it sudden? And that is the question maybe that we're going to get into, but clattering desire at the minute to look backwards and to look backwards at a period we can probably rate as 1980 through until about 1991. Rory, you've used fashion, you've used cinema, got through all the art forms really to have a chat about this. Football does appear to be having a little bit of a backwards look at the minute, and by football I mean football supporters predominantly. Well, I'm going to say they're the two best art forms, uh, fashion and cinema. I mean, you, you could look at theatre, but I mean, who cares? The, um, yeah, so I think that, the, the, the funny enough, I tried to write it last year ahead of the, um, the World Cup, which is all of the Adidas kits at the World Cup last summer were... Um, were basically rip-offs of, or inspired by, is probably how I should put it, various kits from either World Cup 1990 or the 93 Copper America or the 94 World Cup, that general period. They were all kind of updated versions, obviously much much, much better cut, much better material, much better styling. Um, they'd been run through like graphics processors and stuff. They didn't billow quite as much. If you look back at the 1994 World Cup, there's a lot of billowing. Yeah, there's a um, lot of billowing. I, I would say that billowing was football's main function in 1994 it was just it just existed to billow and um so i tried to write it then it didn't quite work out and then i saw arsenal's kit for the season which i think is is beautiful um and thought hang on that might be a hook as well and in the meantime you had uh, asif kapadia re- uh, release maradona in addition to to kenny and 89 which both came out in um in 2017 um you have liverpool's kit which obviously is a fairly is again inspired by 1984 the pinstripes chelsea's kit is apparently inspired by the, do you remember the Commodore kit from 91 and 92? Who doesn't? But they wore, just you just, just think, think of Erland Johnson, that's what he's wearing. Um, and yeah, they that's apparently inspired by that, although to be honest, it's a slightly less obvious inspiration. But it just occurred to me, it's an interesting subject. It just, it's intriguing why it's all happening now, because although football fans, I think, are inherently nostalgic, and I think nostalgia is actually probably the, one of the key tenets of being a football fan, is a sort of yearning for for what used to be, uh, and I think it's unavoidable, natural, and probably quite good, um, it's interesting that that period more broadly is now being used by, by brands and by, by documentarians to, to kind of tell a football story, and I wanted to kind of explore why. And, and I, go on. Well, I was going to say, I think the answer is probably relatively obvious, but that's not something you should ever point out when you're discussing your own work. You should always make it sound like you've, you've had a really sort of profound thought that nobody else has had. But I think it's partly... I, I keep ripping this off from Hadley Freeman, who is who writes The Guardian, but also wrote a book about 1980s films. And she, she sort of defines it as the 30-year rule, which is how long it takes children to grow up, obtain good jobs in the creative industries, and then decide that the, the stuff they liked as kids is actually the best stuff. So it's why you see lots of reboots of like 1980s films more generally. It's why you get that kind of typical approach in music where 
it seems that that kind of everything at the moment is a little bit 80s inflected and that's because the producers and the not, not the artists obviously just people over the age of 40 do not have a future in the music industry but the producers and the kind of tastemakers are of of mine and your generation and because they're the things we remember fondly that's what then gets perpetuated so i think it's part, partly a function of that but i also think partly it's it's a function of the fact that there is a there is a yearning amongst football fans for that pre-modern pre-corporate pre-homogenized yeah. pre-sanitized era so the, on on that and that's the bit of it that really grabs me is you you make mention of all the reasons uh why uh that yearning is is somewhat false in that you know this uh it's a it's it's a time where football was was for the vast majority of humans on the planet a great deal less fun and one of the things that yeah. sort of strikes me with nostalgia is so often the nostalgia that we end up talking about is the nostalgia of white men straight white men yep it's it's very much a patriarchal nostalgia i think that's absolutely fair i think it's also a nostalgia that that and i, I guess this is a function of nostalgia that kind of that that deletes the bits we don't want to remember so i i'm 37 i i grew up uh i guess i mean my my, my memory my early memories of football are pretty much from the 90s but you were aware of of things like uh hooliganism of violence obviously of of the lack of kind of safety at grounds of the, the way fans were treated basically as cattle and then of course of, of Heisel and Hillsborough and we it's, it's interesting to me that we nostalgicize that era fairly openly and we tend to just be like well of course it, although it wasn't a great time for most fans you know people still 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 miss it and you think well hang on that that although is, is doing a lot of heavy lifting there because <laughs> it's it's it is a ridiculous in, in many ways it's a ridiculous period to nostalgicize because even and it, the, i think one of the interesting things is that that period is nostalgicized by people who did not live through it and maybe that explains a lot of it but for the pe- for people who lived through that era who were going to matches who were watching matches who were sort of self-identified as football fans in the 80s it's amazing that really when you think about it when you think about all the stuff they went through about all the stuff that happened about all the people who died that that we are allowed almost to think, do you know, that was great then. It was much better before we were all safe and in seats. It is, it's a really remarkable thing. And look, I, I, I complain about bad atmospheres and the lack of authenticity and the corporatization of the game as much as anybody. But to, to dress up the late 80s as, as anything other than a time when football fans' lives were endangered and in some cases taken by the disregard of the authorities and by the stigmatization of people who, who followed like one particular leisure activity is extraordinary and we, we the other thing we shouldn't do is, is nostalgicize the and this is this is a much more long-running thing but the, the kind of hooli nostalgia is it is, is extraordinary in itself that the fact that that's become like a like a thing if you go to wh smith in an airport you will see cast Pennant's book and i'm sure it's very good but i mean you're you're kind of maybe not deliberately glamorizing but you're kind of in some way like deifying a group of people who were Sort of spent spent their Saturdays rampaging around various towns. It's, it's it's an extraordinary thing that that period seems to evoke su- such romance, despite being in so many ways so bleak. I'm trying to. What I think is different about this 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 little uh, slab of nostalgia around football is, I think it's for the first time, and I might be wrong, and you know people may well feel otherwise. But I've been trying to cast my mind back to sort of to being around football in the 80s and 90s and talking to people who were going as a, as as a very young person uh, as a child. And I think that there was nostalgia was there, and I agree with you that nostalgia will always be part of football, and that it's part of it's it's 
it's locked into the the stories that we tell ourselves. But it strikes me that there's the, the nostalgic element is here as much around not the idea of the footballers, not the idea of Shankly conceptually, not the idea of you know it was it was a man's game back then. It is instead sort of as much here captured by the match going experiences, though in some way, shape, or form, it's you know trying to have some sort of response to what what's deemed a corporatism that may or may not now uh, have greater sway over the game than it did then. Yeah, I think we I think we're all very conscious as fans of what we've lost in terms of atmosphere, in terms of of kind of that 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 those different demographics, the fact that kids are priced out of games now, the fact that, that a lot of a lot of kind of work, working class fans can't afford to go to games, that the kind of creeping corporatisation is probably not even creeping, the sort of rampant corporatisation of it. And I think it's it's legitimate to to yearn for, for a time when that wasn't an issue, to yearn when it's to yearn for a time when it felt like the people's game. Um I think it's interesting that we that people who've grown up not knowing any, any different can miss that. So I think that's a fascinating kind of psychological thing. But then I guess it's because the way that football support is passed down is is through the stories that your parents told, or your uncle, or your auntie, or, or like your older your older siblings, or whatever. That that's where you learn about football, effectively. If not the sport, then then what it means to be a fan. And they tell you of all the all the adventures, the story. You know the story they can tell, what it used to be like. And I think that's what makes you miss that's what makes you miss something you've never known but at the same time it's maybe what allows as i say a period that what that shouldn't be romanticized that shouldn't be sort of fondly remembered particularly to be fondly remembered as, as people with obvious exceptions people who 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 lost people at hillsborough lost people at high school lost people in bradford or people or people who were there with obvious with those obvious exceptions maybe people after a while maybe you forget the bad stuff maybe you you turn the bad stuff into into anecdotes you turn it into kind of war stories for want of a better term of things that you you went through to be a fan to show your colors to to kind of prove your loyalty and i guess that that's maybe where it comes from the i think what's interesting is that we we are losing the we lose the nuance of that when and this isn't true necessarily of the films but certainly when when clubs and brands start to sell back these these kind of bits yeah. of nostalgia to us we lose the nuance of look so the Arsenal, the Arsenal bruised banana kit, which is incredibly evocative to Arsenal fans, I think probably to most fans, that that is redolent of certain things. It's Ian Ryan, it's David Rocastle, and it's and it's Anfield '89, and it's it's all that stuff. That's fine, but it's also a time when, and I spoke to Emmy Lawrence, who was one of the producers on '89, uh, for, for that piece, where you were not, where being a football fan was not like a good thing. It was not something you necessarily enjoyed. It was being part of a tribe in the sense that you had to defend yourself against all of the other tribes, and. That that gets lost when it's when the nostalgia the nostalgia for an, a more authentic, more like pre corporate, pre sanitized era is in itself sanitized and corporatized. That's that's how it gets lost in the transition. And there's something else as well, which is if you're trying to be an agent of change around, for instance, you know, and this is something that we try to engage with quite a lot. If you want to be an agent of change, then you you have to you have to be an agent of change in the real world as is now, and not effectively constantly harking backwards. And this is where, for instance, I have a big thing about ticket prices versus kickoff times and that you know for instance the the football will be televised it will be televised on a mass scale rather than fight the idea of how it's going to be televised you're better off saying you know all that money that you're using to televise it please cut the t- let's take see this as a positive and let's use it as an art in the argument to cut the ticket prices as much as humanly possible and i think that there is my worry with nostalgia whenever it creeps anywhere really but certainly in this instance is harking on about yesterdays and yesterdays that are romanticized actually stops people constructively dealing with how to make tomorrow better 
Yeah, I think that, that, that's a really good point. It's not something I touched on, but probably is, as always when I speak to you, Neil, it makes me think, hmm, should have done more on that. Yeah, I think you're probably right that, that it's I, I, someone more inclined to spreading conspiracy theories on Twitter than me would probably say that it's, it's a deliberate attempt to control the masses, that if you kind of, if you can dose people with just enough nostalgia to, to make to make them happy, if you can dose them with, with enough ideas of how things used to be and wasn't that great, you probably stop them saying, well, actually, maybe we should stop thinking about the past and we should, we should start thinking about the future. The, the, the tick-off times thing really, really interests me because this is, a, this is a really unpopular, probably, or I would imagine it's a really unpopular view. Um, but I, I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea that, that match-going fans are the only fans that matter. So we, we all... I'm not saying that they're not wonderful people and don't deserve credit, but <laughs> or, that I, or, or that I hate them. I just want to make that abundantly clear. I'm trusting that this is a safe space, but football is is a tele, is a televisual event now, and and you can't and a lot of the funding for it, to be perfectly honest, comes from the TV much more than the you know we 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 talk really easily about how TV income out massively now outweighs ticket revenue, and we we just accept that as a fact, and it's true, and no one no one has a problem with that. But we don't seem to make the leap to all right. Well, actually, then it, it's kind of natural, isn't it, that we should then pri- that the clubs should then prior and the league should then prioritise the TV customers. But um, it's more than that. I think that just because you don't go to games doesn't necessarily make you less of a fan. Because what you know, what about people who who can't? We send kids and and working class fans are priced out. Does that mean that they're because they're not kind of spending money they don't have on on tickets? Does that mean that they're not as much of a fan as you? Who is who is the most fan, and and why is that important? Who's de- who's deciding that? So I think it's really interesting that when you see in Germany, and we've had it in Spain with the players, but in Germany, every time they try and play football at a time that is not Saturday at 2pm, the ultras kick off. And it's, it's taken as this really kind of romantic, kind of people's power thing. And to a large extent it is, and that's kind of how I, that, that, that's a lot of my feeling towards it, is that, look, this is really good. This is a people's game, and, and they are fighting for the way they want it to be. But at the same time, a lot of people work on Saturdays now. You know, it's not, it's not 1950. We're, yep. we're all at work seven days a week. Like, what about people who work in hospitals? They don't get to watch it. Like, what, but maybe they, they're not on shift on a Friday night. So maybe they should watch on a Friday night or a Monday evening. What else are you doing on a Monday evening? If there's nothing on, there's no football on TV, what else are you doing? It's Monday. Do you know what I mean? So I just, I think that we, we have this kind of, it's like, the, the, the bits of football that we pick out for nostalgia tend to be very fit in we like this bit we don't like that bit we, li- we like this bit we don't like that bit we're going to forget the bits we don't like and we're just going to take the bits we do like and present them as t- kind of un like like sacrosanct unchallengeable pure things that have been uh, like like it's kind of the 11th commandment is is after thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal it's kind of thou shalt kick off most top flight games at 3pm on a saturday that's and I don't really see why that is. I, I, I find that, I think, to me, that is a strange battle for people to pick, given that, what, 99% of football fans more, must be more, aren't in the stadium. Because they can't be in the stadium. Does not mean what Anfield holds 50, 56,000? Are they the 56,000 most Liverpool fans? I suspect they're not, to be perfectly honest. I suspect that a lot of them, you know, a lot of them you might find more passion elsewhere and among people who are either further away or or can't go for financial reasons or whatever. So I think that's the other danger with nostalgia is that we, we kind of prioritise certain things. I'm rambling now, Neil. We prioritise certain things that and present them as being sort of ideals that we have to hang on to, 
even if they're not necessarily and actually there might be ways of thinking about things a little bit more inventively and creatively with the future in mind rather than thinking that was what it was like in the past and therefore that's that's how it should always be Rory Smith the New York Times the Anfield app doesn't have a set agenda but I'll tell you what I got exactly what I wanted from that back with Ian and Jay to chat about Southampton Liverpool's visit there uh, last season was amongst the worst 30 minutes of my life Ian as the abyss opens up beneath us before Naby Keita's equaliser I was absolutely convinced Liverpool's worst 10 minutes of the season was the first 10 minutes against Southampton Liverpool's second worst 10 minutes of the season was the, temp- the second 10 minutes against Southampton and the third 10 minutes didn't have much to recommend it <laughs> Liverpool have got to go to Southampton now off the back of that result uh, and the 120 minutes against Chelsea it will be tough but again I sort of feel like well these lads will find a way yeah I mean that game last year I mean that was probably the most stressed I've ever been watching a football match it was hard that year that in Newcastle away was uh, no yeah, battle of laughs uh, yeah I mean Newcastle yeah to be fair yeah on the back of Southampton that was another tough one to be fair but yeah I mean it, it, it's, a, it's a tough place to go because you know Hassan Hootel will have had them for a pre-season now and I think I mentioned it on the show you know we he did get the the term Klopp of the Alps for a reason you know he's very very high press he'll have put them through an intense pre-season it's going to be a tough test I mean I was a little bit surprised they got a, a paste in first game of the season you know last half an hour against Burnley they capitulate and concede three goals but you know first game at home new season you'd imagine they're going to give us a really tough half an hour so yeah I can see similar to, to last year Neil really where we're going to have to ride a little bit of a storm and I think, you know, the manager's got one or two selection headaches, I would suggest. Um, you know, ahead of a tough game against Chelsea, you know, you've had the City game, you've had the Norwich game. Yes, he's got options from the bench, um, but I think he's probably going to have to go with a, a similar back four to what he's to what he's gone with, um, you know, or his favourite back four, I should say. Then Gomez stays in there with with Virgil, the two full-backs, as I mentioned before. Because they offer so much creativity, you've almost got to go with them. You know, you do see... Joe Gomez doing a little bit of both full-back positions, but it does blunt us quite a lot when he plays there. Midfield's the, the big one because I think the forward three will have to play. You know, Bobby doesn't start, so he, he'll start. I think, you know, Salah and Mane will have to start. Um, some people might make a case for a re, but not me. Midfield, as always, is, is the area where you're not quite sure what he's going to do. Well... He finds himself, Jay, in a situation where Fabinho's down with cramp. He didn't want to start Henderson. Henderson had 120 minutes. I mean, Fabinho gets up from cramp to take a very good penalty, don't get me wrong, but... It just rolls it in. Like, like he was just like, oh, get this done. Yeah, get this out of the way. Maybe we could have sat back down in the penalty spot. Yeah. Um, it's, I think he has to go with the front three, and I think he will yeah. go with the front three, even if it's just to do them for an hour and go from there uh, and make that assessment. I think he's able to say to them, come on, boys. Give me, give me one more big run here, and then we've got a week off. And yeah, you know, got a week off to last. And we've, just, we've, just, time. And we've just won the trophy. It's easier to have that conversation mm-hmm. with the medals hanging around the next, but it is going to be difficult for him, isn't it, to pick a midfield three? So, have we, what have we done? Have we flew straight from staying in Istanbul last night? Flew to, you can't imagine why they're going to fly back to Liverpool and then fly back to Southampton tomorrow. I'm not quite but, sure. You know, you dope the players are just like no training, bit of a minimal thing. The front three plays, the back four. You know, the, the two usual full-backs and Van Dijk and Gomez, the same for me. I think Genie plays in midfield. I think just in terms of legs. But, mm. you know, I'm sat here and I've, I've just literally written this team out and I've got two other blanks and I, I don't know what he does. And I, I, I do wonder if you end up do, seeing something a bit different or left field here for, for legs, whether, you know... I think Lallana might start, you know... I, I, see, I see this. I'm not trying to do it, but, but I, I think, uh, well, I, yeah, no, and, I, and, I, and that was me thought. But I just wonder if that's just oh, that's just a big thing to do for a lad that's hardly played and hasn't played what what competitive minutes has he had a bit in the charity shield. That's it. That's it. I, think I wouldn't that's do a, it personally. I think that's a big thing to start him. I could see him doing it, but then I think that's a big thing to put into him. Milner got a that, knock as well. Um, so if it's so if it's Genie and Lalana. 
but but then who else? Who's your third in a way? You might well, have to. I think he'd probably go when Alden definitely because he doesn't obviously start. Does he make Milner or Henderson play? I think Henderson or Fabinho maybe. It's a tough one. I mean, you might have to just look at the fitness of the pair of them. And then I just wouldn't surprise me if you threw Lallana in there. As I say, I wouldn't do it. Um, but who would you pick? Just, if you wouldn't throw Lallana in, who would you pick? I, th- I think I'd be asking Fabino and Henderson to go again if they could with Wijnaldum. If they could, but obviously it's fitness permitting because I think James Milner took a knock and he, it didn't look great. He's got the ice pack on his knee and stuff. So, you know, Liverpool are in a tricky situation midfield-wise because I, I touched on it before. You know, Chamberlain, it's hard to judge him on that left-hand side performance, but he... He doesn't look like he's ready for 90 minutes just yet, um, or even maybe starting games. And, you know, there was something around the beginning of the season talking about him managing a calf problem and the fact that it's going to take him a lot of time. And I think behind the scenes, the club are almost kind of accepting that it's going to take him time to get to his natural level. And you've got your Naby Keita problem where the AFCON's probably played a part in this, but he keeps picking up little niggly injuries. So he might not be an option for the weekend either. So you haven't got loads in there, Neil. It's a, it's a functional midfield, pretty much, however you go, which is why I think he might just look at Lalana to give him something slightly different and it's it's fresh legs. Is an argument that he maybe does when Aldum, Lalana, and then Henderson and Fabinho are almost one of them's doing 60, the other one's doing 30? Yeah, which is what I said before. You could easily see a scenario because you know, Fabinho looked dead on his feet. So again, it's looking into the players' eyes and, and see him maybe, you know, and, and obviously the data science behind it all and just see where he could go again. But, you know, there is a bit of a break after this one. So it might be a case of saying, lads, listen, belt and braces here. Can you just get me through one more game? Then you've got a bit of a break. Or he might just say, you know what? I've got to start to use the squad a little bit more. And that's where maybe Lallana my comes cons- in. My concern with that is I'm sitting there thinking, them, OK, well, Lallana does the sitting. That's a big ass. I wouldn't have him sitting, Jay. I wouldn't have Lallana sitting. No chance. Not Sh- a Premier League game. Sue sits Henderson. You could see, well, you could, Van Allen could sit. What? I just think, I, just think asking, I don't know, I just, I, just, I think looking at that midfield there, Anderson, Wijnaldum and Lallana, I think you're then asking a lot to your full-backs in terms of creativity, in terms of where their legs might be at. Um, I, I, think, I think we do anyway, though, I think that's the problem. I think whichever midfield three you go with, um, I think, you know, there's, there's not loads of variety in there. This does, is he where, do something left, does he do something left field? Does he put Firmino, you know, could you, could you sit there and say, do you put Firmino? Would you have a two with Firmino behind? I think the left field move, there's two left field moves. One is that he changes the shape oh, and, he the goes Shaki- four two, yeah. and he goes 4-2-3-1. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. He goes 4-2-3-1, picks Shaqiri and almost and has I'm the idea of we blitz well. these. Firmino in behind, Mane left and um, and, and, and sell through the middle with yeah. Firmino be, playing 10 and do that. That's one of his options. I think his other left field option is actually ask Oxley Chamberlain to go back into centre mid for this one. He's only done forty five, mm. so he only does forty five at the weekend. Sorry, in the, in the midweek game. And I wonder whether or not when you're all going through the options there, we all sort of. I understand why you were saying about he doesn't look quite ready, but he hasn't seen him play number eight. And mm. I just think that one of my takeaways from last from last night is I just don't really like him in the front three. There's there's a number of players I'd almost rather have in the front three. Like I probably in a weird way rather he played Wijnaldum, yeah. where he played Oxley Chamberlain last night. So mm. does he feel as though well he only did forty five for me? And Chamberlain's better getting the ball and turning and driving. That's what it? I mean. Oh, he doesn't get, to, oh, doesn't get listen, to do that from a three. I, I, I mean, if everyone's fit and far and absolutely do that. I mean, my thing against Chelsea last night, I was thinking. Bobby at half time for Milner and just shift Chamberlain back to the midfield. Yeah. But he doesn't do that. And I'm thinking, well, because Milner was having a really poor game, and all of a sudden, Milner looked like a 34 year old man last night. And that might just be one of those things. It can happen in football matches. But he looked like he was really struggling, Milner. So I'm thinking, drop Chamberlain back into the midfield, shift Milner out, and put Bobby on. But he doesn't do that. And, you know, we know this manager is quite. You know, Neil, you talk about it a lot. He can be quite conservative at times, and therefore, I think he might just fancy more of a 
what he would deem to maybe you know be a, a robust midfield um, and not quite have that attacking threat. He'd rather maybe keep it more compact and solid. And I say maybe Lallana doesn't quite give you that like some of the other lads do, but I think he does trust Lallana to do a job for him. As I say, I would be starting him, but it wouldn't surprise me if the manager goes with him. Um, pick me a team. Not pick me a team. Give me a scoreline, Jay. You've just done it all. <laughs> don't, pick, don't pick me there, team. Either though, Hollyberg will start. Uh, give me a scoreline. Uh, Tuna Liverpool. 2-1. Really tight. Really tight uh, from Ian. Uh, 2-0 from Jay. Uh, feels a bit like Palace last season. Liverpool will have to scrap for their lives, fight for their lives to do the business against Southampton. But the manager will be saying to them, one more go round for me, boys. And then we can all have a lovely big breather between now and Arsenal. Thank you very much to Jay, to Ian, and to everyone else who's contributed to the show this week. It's been a big weekend. Uh, take it easy. Enjoy it. Saturday, 3pm. Sports Social Podcast Network.